Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this morning, may it be indeed our firm foundation. May it be that which we know is true, does not change, that we can plant and root in and grow from, and never strive to know more of, to grow in, and to grow from. Be with us this morning, God, as we consider your word, some very direct teachings of your Son, but uh, those are the teachings which can push us and mold us most. We just pray that hearts are open, minds are engaged, and spirits are tuned to you and your will this morning. Just act, act among us, God. Be here and move in ways beyond what we can imagine and what we can control. Move in ways that only you can, and that's why you're our God. Thank you, God, for being that kind of God and for giving us this kind of word in the name of this kind of Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We uh, have a bit of a longer text this morning, and so just to let you know what's going on, the uh, sermon will actually be in two parts, and so there'll be another scripture reading, and uh, there'll be uh, a break in between. Just a FYI, not that, uh, uh, hopefully that'll throw too many people, but uh, it's also good because, as I just mentioned, there are some things in this sermon which are definitely a bit uh, direct, as Jesus is getting more and more direct. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, now is about the time in Matthew there's a definite shift. The Pharisees are definitely, uh, excuse me, are definitely uh, antagonizing Jesus a bit more and feeling more and more threatened. And Jesus is speaking more and more directly, more and more bluntly uh, about the kingdom, very much directly to the Pharisees and the religious authorities because of the way that they are presenting and teaching the kingdom up till now, which in layman's terms, spoiler alert, Jesus says is just wrong. We talked last week about the Pharisees and the fact that Jesus talked to them about how they have knowledge, but yet they don't have the right application. And joining these two things, knowledge and application, biblically is called wisdom. And that's truly what we're after here. Not just what are the rules of kingdom living, but really what does it mean to live in kingdom ways? You can rule a man, meaning you can tell him, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, and no matter how thorough you are, no matter how thorough the law is, there are still going to be times that you cannot think of, that he will have to think, hmm, what is the kingdom like? What is the Christ like? What is the godly thing to do? We didn't cover this in Sunday school. The Jews tried that. And it was perverted, as Romans 9, 32 and 33 says, into a law of works, a law where they thought because they obeyed, because they were somebody, God owed them something when Jesus says, no, even the law, old and new for that matter, was always meant to be by faith. It's faith and acting in faith in wisdom. Kingdom ways, as kingdom citizens, which God is after, which Jesus is after, in which Jesus tells about in this passage. It was read just a moment ago, but let's deal, delve into it again. Then, after Matt, Jesus had just with the withered hand on the Sabbath, after eating some grain on the Sabbath, after Jesus had just dealt with the fact that it is never unlawful, or put in the way that Jesus said, it's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath. We talked this about last week, that there are transcultural and timeless principles that will always supersede cultural and situational and even legal rules. That's what Jesus is saying, the higher law of love, of God-likeness, of Christ-likeness. Then, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute uh, came to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished 
That word in Greek literally means to be beside themselves, flabbergasted, dumbfounded, and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan, in other words, the accuser, that this fellow drives out demons. Just stop there before we even get into it. And just think of the magnitude that this accusation is. We know the Pharisees would like to think, well, they just didn't like Jesus. They're trying to accuse him so that way they can eventually kill him. But I mean, just stop for a moment and think about the magnitude of this accusation. The Pharisees are seeing something. They're seeing things that they cannot deny. They're seeing the signs. They're seeing the power that Jesus has. They're seeing the power of God that Jesus is displaying. They can't deny that. So what do they do? Instead of trying to deny it or trying to simply say uh, something about it, they go after something much more serious and they say the source of Jesus' power, the very way that Jesus is doing anything and therefore everything in His ministry is from Satan, from evil, Beelzebub. Think of the magnitude of that. To see what is good from God and to call it satanic. I fear that in our culture, even among Christians, calling something that has lost some of its power, when to take not only what is good, but what is good from the things from whom all things are good, and to attribute it to the evil one. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. This is a principle that's not just true in Jesus' time or in the church, but this is a truism regardless. Every kingdom, every realm of power, every organization, if we begin to fight against ourselves, whether in a church, a business, a family, a marriage, a friendship, anytime you begin to fight amongst yourself and divide yourself and fight a civil war, as it were, whatever you're fighting against will break apart. Take whatever context you want, and this is true in the sense that whatever context will eventually break with too much infighting. I see this all the time. I've seen this too many times in my ministry with marriages. But I've seen it in organizations. I've seen it in families, between siblings, between parents. Anytime that there is something between someone else that causes you to fight, that causes that kingdom to divide put something in between relationship and if, if you want to do this to make something unrighteous afterwards that's what righteousness means right relationship anytime you put something between you there's no longer a straight relationship a right relationship it will be divided and Jesus calls them out on this ridiculous <laughs> accusation he says if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. But how can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. He's basically saying, look, exorcisms and, and these kind of things are done in Judaism. Now if I, who am obviously proving I'm from God, are doing it by the power of Satan, who do you got working for you? 
But Jesus says, if, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first a strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. If by the power of Satan we don't have sound... All right. Little hiccup. Hopefully time to regain our thoughts a little bit. Anyway, he was saying, unless anyone enters a strong man's house and can carry off his possessions, unless he ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, we read this, and the language is such that sometimes we go against it, but what is, we kind of fly over a little bit. But what is Jesus saying here? Who is the strong man? Who is... What he took up? Who are his possessions? What is the image that Jesus is kind of referring back to here? What is the whole point of this whole pericope? Well, what we're seeing here is a conflict amongst the kingdoms. What we're seeing here is a conflict from the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Whatever you want to define that as. The kingdom of evil, the kingdom of human authority, human worship of human idolatry priorities, however you want to say it. Specifically here, in a sense, what Jesus is referring back to with the strong man, with the Beelzebub, with Satan, he's referring, in a sense, back all the way to the Genesis 3 conflict. That the serpent will strike a heel of the man, the man will crush his head. Except that what Jesus is basically playing into is that that conflict of good against evil, Satan against God, is now playing out between Jesus and the religious authorities of the time. Ouch. I could stop here a little bit and say, how often do we incite this own conflict amongst ourselves instead of focusing on kingdom work? But that might be a little bit too meddling. He says, the strong man. Who will tie up the strong man? How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first has up the strong man? Who is the strong man? What is he talking about here? He's talking about Satan as the strong man, the accuser, the evil one. And he's saying here that Jesus, and only himself, Jesus, has the power to enter the strong man's house and tie him up, and therefore carry off his possessions. Well, who is our, his possessions? Evil's prisoners that have now been freed by the kingdom coming. The thing is, don't miss here. Jesus is saying that the religious authorities, the Pharisees, are being complicit in the strong man and Satan's mission of enslaving the people that Jesus is trying to free, accusing Jesus and his power of being from Satan. Jesus is saying, I am the only one who's strong enough to do that, and the kingdom, in order to do that, has indeed come. And he comes back to the Pharisees, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's issuing a challenge, which is exacerbated by this next passage. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This verse has been mangled and ignored because it's a, it's a very in-your-face statement. What do we do with this? Well, keep in mind the context. I so I tell you, every type of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, will be forgiven. Contextually, what is that? What, why is that? Anyone who speaks against Jesus himself 
it can be forgiven right now because the fullness of his ministry, the fullness of his messiahship hasn't been revealed yet. But anyone, Jesus is saying, who speaks against the Spirit, which contextually, the Spirit is the one who gives Jesus the power. The Spirit is through whom Jesus works in order to do these miracles, to proclaim the kingdom of God as having come, to show the power of kingdom, to show the power of the Messiah. It's that kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit by what you see cannot be forgiven. What is he saying here? He's talking contextually about what they just did. By calling something that is good, calling something which is from God, and calling it from Satan. We're talking specifically in this context, in this verse, about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. In this case, specifically in Jesus' ministry, but as well as in principle. What we're talking about specifically here are people that see the work of the Spirit people who are aware that it is the work of the Spirit of God doing something and who intentionally and conscientiously turn their back and deny it. So let's talk about what we're not talking about for a second. We're not talking about doubt. We're not talking about uncertainty. We're not talking about interpreting things. Well, is that from God? Is that from not? No, no, no. We're talking about things in this specific context, in Jesus and the Pharisees, where the Holy Spirit has done something which is undeniable. And the people who see it already know that's something the Spirit of God does. That's something from God. And they intentionally say, I choose not to believe it. I choose to deny it. In fact, not only do I choose not to, I'm going to attribute it to Satan. Put another way, who Jesus is talking about here are those who consciously and willfully reject the conviction and experience of the Holy Spirit, Christ and God, as who shall not be redeemed. Put one more way, those who know it's true, but choose to reject truth. Once again, we're not talking about simple doubt. We're not talking about uncertainty. We're not talking about interpretation. We're not talking about having accidentally misapplied a scripture. So if you've ever wondered if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and you've tried to make it right, you haven't done it. You don't need to worry. If you're worried about it, this doesn't apply to you. If you're worried about offending the Spirit, this doesn't apply to you. If you're trying to stay right with God and seeking out the Spirit working in the world, and seeking out what's true, this doesn't apply to you. What it does apply to, as I said, are those who have experienced who God is, experienced the kingdom, experienced forgiveness, experienced the gospel, experienced and known and been convicted and intentionally go, no. In fact, not just no, all of you people, all of the things you do, they're from Satan. Jesus to the Pharisees is basically saying this. How normal people interpret what I'm doing is like this. Good is good. Evil is bad. Except what you guys are doing and the people to whom this applies, you call good bad. And you call evil good. You have flipped it around completely and on purpose. And not only have you said no 
but you have attributed the source to evil. Jesus continues, having made this proclamation, which incensed the Pharisees, if you can imagine that. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad or its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you say who are evil? How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. By your words you will be condemned. Simple principle here, which is true even today, that your words reveal the character of your heart. Your words reveal what you are seeking. Your words reveal what you are after, what your heart desires. And your heart, your words reveal, in a sense, who you worship. Now, contextually, he's talking about the Pharisees who are seeing something undeniably from God and saying, no, it's from Satan. And Jesus is saying, you are so messed up. Your heart is so in the wrong place. And you'll have to answer for that because you are denying what is undeniable. This principle still applies to us, obviously. It's only by Beelzebub's that this fellow drives out demons. For those who say no, not just no, but for those who reject and attribute wrongly to the Pharisees and in general, Jesus is saying there'll be an account. But it also makes us question, as everything does, our witness. And I think that's where I'm going to stop for this first part. What in our ministry, what in our lives, what in our church, what are things which may draw someone today to see and experience a little bit of the goodness of God, a little bit of the gospel, or be striving towards God, but yet all of a sudden want to make them go either no or even worse, do what Jesus says is undeniable, unforgivable, which is to say, things are so bad here, things are so messed up, you're not from God, you're from Satan. Hopefully nothing. But the bigger principle is, while this is talking about the Pharisees, the bigger principle is, this is also something every Christian needs to be aware of in our witness. The base principle is not to put barriers up. The worst thing we can do is to not own our behavior, to not own our mistakes, accept the grace of God and His forgiveness to the point of where people say, yes, I know you're messed up, but I see God in you, as opposed to the opposite. For the moment, let's pause there, and we'll come back around for the second hard thing and third hard thing Jesus says in this passage. As we said, Jesus doesn't really settle down in between these two passages, because immediately after, <clears throat> then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, consider what just happened. Jesus heals a man. It's from Satan, they say. Hey, but we want to see a sign. This is one of those times Jesus, I'm sure, just went, Oh, people. Except <laughs> he does worse than that. <laughs> He's answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Keep in mind the context. But also, keep in mind what he says just now. 
except none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now, just for a second, that makes a lot of sense from our perspective. Until you remember, the men of Nineveh never saw Jonah come out of the whale. They never saw the sign. But they repented at his preaching. Think about the application of that. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign instead of believing what is from God. None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for which the people who repented from never actually saw. What makes it worse, what Jesus is saying, is that remember Jonah's attitude towards the men of Nineveh? Thomas revised version. They're so horrible, you're going to forgive them? I'm out. Hence, enter fish or whale or sea creature. We're not going to get into that detail. If that's what you take away from this sermon, no. Jonah's like, you're going to forgive those people? They are so horrible. They're so wicked. God, you cannot forgive them. I'm not going to do it. After he comes out of the creature, Jonah's like, fine, except I'm going to pout about it. But eventually, historically, we know that they do. Jonah does preach to them, the men of Nineveh, do repent. Jesus is saying, those guys who were so bad that one of our own prophets didn't want to talk to them, they will stand up in judgment against you, this generation, because of how you're acting. Ouch. Like the third ouch Jesus has gotten on the Pharisees so far. And it gets worse. <clears throat> the Queen of the South, from First Kings, that comes to Solomon, a pagan Gentile nation will rise in judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. She thought that Solomon, a man's wisdom, was so great, she uprooted and made the journey to sit at his feet. A pagan Gentile queen. And Jesus is saying, if she's willing to do that because of what she recognized, something greater than Solomon's here, something greater than Jonah's here, and you guys don't get it. Either you get it, or you don't want to have it. One's worse. So then he goes off <clears throat> on the last part. Oops. And he's talking, keep in mind, about the context, which put simply is that they are missing the big point that Jesus himself, he, in coming in the flesh, in doing these signs, in proclaiming the Old Testament, in proclaiming God's wisdom, Jesus himself is the sign. They ask for a sign because they want miracles or they want to confirm or they want something to die. Jesus is saying, you're missing it because I am the sign. I am, because I'm here, I am the sign, both of judgment as well as repentance. And right now, you guys are getting a whole lot of judgment that hopefully will lead to your repentance. Because this whole generation that you're leading is wicked. It is interesting, I'll point out again, that Jesus subscribes to the age-old truth that people go as their leaders do, and when an organization or a culture is responsible, it's not from the person who had the least power, it's people who had the most that Jesus points the blame at. So he's sitting it right at the judgment of the Pharisees. 
Out of that, Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest. It does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying to the Pharisees, to the religious authorities, to everyone listening, that the whole Old Testament, the whole of your history, Israel, has been God clearing out everything which has been ailing you, idolatry, being captured by other countries, leading you out of slavery, knocking idolatry out of you with two other um, armies. This has been God clearing out, organizing, and readying the room for the Messiah to come into and to occupy. Except you're denying the Messiah... And so what's going to happen is that the spirit that God has spent centuries trying to kick out of you, they're going to come back, they're going to bring their friends, and they're going to have a party. And it's not going to be good. Put it another way, when it comes to choosing Jesus as Messiah or choosing demons, Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees, by not choosing me, you are choosing evil. What's worse you are actually choosing evil because you're calling what I'm doing from God evil. This isn't metaphorical. This isn't like, hey, you're on the wayward path, my son. He say, you are choosing evil, and it's going to go bad for you. There's a lot of ways we could apply that. I think the two most obvious are a general commendation to ourselves to make sure that we are always striving towards God's will. Except I think the second thing we have to take from that is we have to be willing to accept that God may work in ways that we may not be most comfortable with, may not be the status quo, may not be normal, quote-unquote, but who are we to call it bad if it is being like God? Now that's hard And I'm not going to explain that right now because it's too much to explain. All I'm saying is I think the biggest takeaway from this section for us today as a church in Corvallis, Oregon, is to keep in mind self-condemning actions from whether it be an elder or another member of someone who is doing God's will in a way that we don't expect or don't like is in a way committing the same sin that the Pharisees are doing. That's where wisdom comes in. But we've never done it that way before. Is it Christ-like? That's not how we do it. Is it Christ-like? Is it godly? Well, that's new. Is it wisdom? Is it godly? Is it Christ-like? Is it loving? There's no law against doing good. And that takes conversation, and that takes wisdom, and that takes patience. Among ourselves, are we sometimes guilty of calling something evil or bad, when in fact it's just another way or an unexpected way that the kingdom is showing itself in our congregation, in our city as an opportunity. That's a bit of a stretch, I'll admit. But they meet up pretty well if we go down that route. Afterwards, While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Now, Mark gives us the parallel passage here. And in Mark, 
Mark records that his mother and brothers came to, in essence, take him, meaning he had done something bad. That's why I'm talking about the application, because the very next thing is Jesus' mother and his brothers coming to take Jesus and, in essence, talk him down to bring him away from his commotion that he's causing. The word in Mark... Actually, I'll just turn to it and read it for you. Mark 3. (laughs) You don't have to if you don't like. (laughs) Mark 3. And while his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him that said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. That word called him, in the Greek, literally means to like say, Shh, lie down. Come with us. And we know from John chapter 7 that his brothers even didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in the messiahship and the ministry of his own brother, half-brother. So Matthew doesn't get into some of these weeds, but yet we know from parallel passages they're coming not just to be like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? But they're coming to actually collect him because they say he's doing something not good. Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointed to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. What I think is going on here is that family was so tight in Israel, his mother and brothers expected not only to be able to come right to him whenever they want him, it's as if you're at a concert and you happen to know either the people who are working behind the scenes or know the band who of us, if it's someone we like, wouldn't be tempted to be like, hey, hey, can you get me backstage? You know, hey, you and me, right? Yeah, all right. In fact, Jesus' mother already did this. In John, at the wedding, at Cana, his mother's like, hey, they're out of wine. You can, you can fix this. And Jesus is like, woman, it's not my time yet. But also, what Jesus is speaking to also instead of insider language and insider connections is redefining in the kingdom what family is now Jesus and the spirit and God the triune God created the family unit they tell us to honor our mother and father they tell us to be good stewards of our children they tell us to raise them well the family unit is important integral designed by God. It's the foundation of society. It's the foundation of church. There are things which the family unit, however your family is organized, is incredibly important. God honored. God created. God good. Having said that, all that's true, and yet what Jesus says here is redefines the priority even over family. To saying, pointing to his disciples, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying? He's saying that the priority of him and the priority of kingdom citizens needs to be on that which is eternal for the kingdom that will last, not on the temporary binds and bounds and relationships of family. Put another way, care of your family, and Jesus does. Actually, Josh will talk about that in communion. 
But he's making a very clear point saying here that kingdom work and kingdom living, kingdom priorities takes precedence even over the priorities that your family may wish for you. Go back a few chapters when he says, look, just by virtue of believing in me, conflict will come against father, mother, sister, brother. He's not advocating for you to say, heck with you, wife and kids, I'm off to somewhere. I think he's more saying that when there's a conflict between family and kingdom, kingdom wins. It's hard in this day and age whenever family is becoming so degraded that it's almost families being massacred nowadays. But even us must be careful not to make it an idol among ourselves. Jesus is saying that the family of God is what will last eternally. The family of God is the kingdom. It's the way that God has worked in the world. The family of God and its priority is what matters when there comes a conflict between the kingdom of you and the kingdom of your family, just like in the conflict of the kingdom between Satan and God. That's hard. There are three hard things Jesus says. Let's bring it together for a second. What is Jesus going here, saying here? Well, he said a lot of things. He said some things that are downright almost crazy, unless he's God. He said some things which makes us think. You know, I've had Bible studies with people, and there's a very popular teaching out there that says, well, even if you don't take Jesus as Lord, Eric talked about this in the even if you don't take Jesus as Lord, he's at least a good moral teacher, and we can still learn good things from him. Take what he just said in this passage. This generation's evil and wicked. You cannot be forgiven if you do this. Forsake your family for the kingdom. Out of context, if he's not Lord and can't make those, are those things really moral? Are those things really good? Here's the thing which I want to take away from this whole passage. And this is the better application than trying to directly apply it. And I'm stealing this from a Scottish preacher, which I, I listen to quite often. The people in this passage say a couple of things about Jesus. They say, he's mad. His family is coming to collect him. What he's doing, you know, who, why listen to him? They said, he's bad. He's from Satan. Here's the thing. And I have to uh, engage in an, in an accent of our southern brethren for this application, stealing from Mr. Begg. In this passage, we see Jesus is either mad or bad or he's gad. It's hokey, but it works, okay? I just wanted to say it. He's mad, a bad, or he's God. What this passage, I think, should do for us nowadays is consider truly who Jesus is in our lives. Let me steal from C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be gone. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and had the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman and something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic, neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What this passage, among others, teaches us is the true nature of Jesus. He was either a lunatic, a loony, he was either a liar, might have been legend, except history doesn't say that, secular history doesn't say that, or he was Lord. The hard passages of Jesus, I pray, don't cause us to take pause of him, but truly aim to refocus who he is in our lives. He cannot be just a friend. He cannot be someone that you come to on Sunday. He cannot be someone you look up to. He cannot be someone who you aspire to. He is either Lord and you are crucified with Him, or He's not in your life. The question I think of this passage best asks us that who is Jesus to you? Do you want him to be mad, just mad? I don't have to pay attention to him. Do you want him to be bad? Or you better not pay attention to him? But if he's not those, just maybe, is he God? Whether or not you're a Christian, even if you are, that's never something to reflect upon of who is Jesus in your life when you leave this building and every moment after. Heavenly Father, I pray that question can impact those who are here and strive help us strive to make you more the center of our life. <clears throat> and I do pray that whoever is listening who needs to consider that question that you help them do that indeed. Become our Lord our crucified Savior, become our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.